I'm really excited about this next series that we're going to begin because I think there's a lot of it that I believe, if we'll allow it to, will speak into our life in ways um, that, that we desperately need. Uh, the, this, next, this new series that we're going to start, our fall series, is going to be called Working from Victory. Working from victory. And it's this idea uh, that everything we do in our Christian life is from this perspective. You're going to constantly hear me kind of speak of this perspective and that our perspective influences our progress or directs our progress and how we move through the difficulties of life and the things that we experience. And, and what we're going to use to be able to walk through this is the book of James. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to James chapter 1. And we're going to start our fall series there with the book of James. And um, man, a very unique book written for a unique reason. And I think that in the landscape of the Bible, this is one of the most practical texts that we could see for day-to-day life. For day-to-day life, and it's just—it's really unreal the way this book is laid out. Um, some, some, uh, the church fathers, even some theologians and uh, from the church, they, uh, they, one specifically, Martin Luther, he didn't really care for this book. He didn't really care for the book. He said that the book was a letter full of straw. Now, and this was a man uh, full wanting deep things and wanting uh, rich doctrinal things. And uh, the, the thing about it in this situation for Martin Luther, the problem that he was having was that he was, this was in the time when he was fighting against this idea of a work-based religion. Uh, he was fighting with the Church of Rome, and, and, and he was pushing back against them who were saying that you had to pay money for grace, that you had to do these activities for grace, that to, to gain God's grace, you had to earn it, basically. And so a lot of times this book, the book of James, was used against him. It was quoted against him because what the book of James is about is it is about our work. It is about how we live as Christians. It's about how we function as believers in this world. But it also didn't expound on any deep doctrine. And so in a lot of ways, he would call this, he said it was a book full of straw, but he didn't neglect the teachings that the book of James had because he also realized something very specific and very special about the book of James is that he did agree with it and he taught it. And this is what he had to say about the book of James, even though he didn't like the way Christians were using it or the Church of Rome was using it against people. He said this, he he understood that faith is living, that faith is busy, that faith is an active, mighty thing that comes to be. He says it is impossible, it is impossible for it not to be doing good things constantly. He says active faith, active Christian faith, he says, does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already been done. He realized that this book was important. He realized that the book of James was important for the day-to-day life of a believer. He understood that this had a lot of practical information for us in our lives, that even though it doesn't expound on any doctrine, he understood because what you'll see as we go through this book in the book of James, you'll see how much it mirrors the teaching of Jesus, specifically on the Sermon on the Mount, when he would teach on very practical day-to-day experiences, on what we do as Christians, how we live as Christians, and how we live our life. Uh, You know, this is thought to be one of the oldest books written in the New Testament, so one of the last books written to the church in the New Testament. And, uh, and, and in this book, it's a general letter. It's not written to a specific church or a specific group of people. And so a lot of times in the Bible, when these things were written, they would be circulated amongst a group of people. 
uh, and, and I'm getting through some of this intro stuff, but I just I really want to lay the foundation for where we're going for this because I believe it's very important. The book of James presents 60 obligations or 60 kind of lifestyle, 60 lifestyle decisions that we make as Christians, how we walk and how we live as Christians and how that should look. So 60 of those and only 108 verses. So that just shows you how important James saw the workings of our life coming from our faith that our faith would be lived out and walked through in a very practical, real way. And so he wanted us to understand this, that how we live out our faith, how our faith is active practically, is affected by our perception. It's affected by our perception of who we are, not only before others, but before a holy God. And so if I could sum up, our, or sum up my sermon this morning in one sentence, I want it to be this. That faithful living begins with humility. And that's where we're going to begin this morning in, in James chapter 1, verse 1, is that we're going to see that faithful living begins with humility. How we see ourselves before God and how we see ourselves before other people. And so that's how he begins to present this. And so I want us, what I hope that we can learn from James, uh, from his perception of how we can begin working from victory, from this perspective of what Christ has done for us on the cross, to begin to work from victory through our faith in Jesus. Okay, and so James chapter 1, verse 1 is where we're going to be at. So let's read that together if you could. James chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So two things this morning that I want us to gain from James before we begin to move into this, to this space of working from victory, to begin to, to just settle into the victory that Christ had for us on the cross and begin to allow that to kind of fall out of us. You know, uh, like I said, Paul, Paul taught justification by faith through grace alone in Jesus Christ. And, and James, he's not uh, countering that teaching. He's not saying that the things Paul said and uh, all through Paul's writings are wrong, but what he's saying is that faith is lived out, it is active because of our justification. It's because God has made us right through Jesus Christ. And so we're not right because we do good. Because if, you, if you're like me and you're reminded daily how much we do fall, how much we do fail, I thank God that my status before the Lord Jesus isn't because I do enough good in my life. Amen? That it's not because I'm good enough. But he says it's because he's justified us, because he's guaranteed that we will be glorified and made righteous in him. That it's that we live, that our faith is active, that it is presented, that it is lived out in the way that we live our life. And so the two things that I want us to see about how James even welcomes us into this series this morning are first being that his view of his position, his view of his position is important for us to see this morning. He says here in James 1, he says, James, a servant. He presents himself as a servant. You know, historians believe that this James was the James that would have been Jesus' brother mentioned in Scripture. There are, three other, there are three other James mentioned in the Bible, but specifically it is believed that this James is the James who was the half-brother of Jesus. Okay, so obviously Jesus being the firstborn, because when Mary had Jesus, she was a virgin, and so after that he would have had three other brothers, and, and their names are listed in Matthew, uh, Matthew 13, verse 55. It says, Our are not his brothers, talking about Jesus, James, Joseph, Simon, four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. 
And so he had other brothers. This would have been Joseph and Mary's other children that, that would have been Jesus' half-brothers. Uh, half and so they believe that this James is the James that was the half-brother of Jesus. And the thing that we have to understand about James is that James was not a believer under Jesus' earthly ministry. He, did, he had not put his faith in Christ. He did not believe in the things that Jesus had done because the Bible tells us that. In John chapter 7, verse 2 through 5, it says, Now the Jews uh, at the Feast of Booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, this is all of Jesus' brothers, said, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may seek the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. So their brothers are saying they need to see things from you to believe in you. And then right after this, it says, For not even his brothers believe in him. So even Jesus' brothers, the people in his own household, didn't believe in who he was and the things that he was coming to do. And so this James that is writing this letter to the church worldwide is, is, it was not a believer in Jesus during his earthly ministry, during this time in the early part of his life. But what I love about it is that Jesus didn't give up on him. Jesus didn't give up on James. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it tells us that James was actually one of the first people that Jesus revealed himself to. It says here in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So he appeared to James, his brother, before he even appeared to his closest apostles. Which is so significant. Because knowing that James did not believe in the things that Jesus would do, knowing that James did not have faith in what Christ came to do and just the work that he did, and we don't see James intermingled or, or involved in any of the things that he's doing in his earthly ministry in the Gospels, in the early part of the Gospels. But as far as James, James's position, he would become a foundational member of a growing church. Because Christ didn't give up on him. Because Christ kept pouring into him, kept involving him. In Galatians 2.9, and it says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars... This is Paul talking about the leadership of the church. He says, When James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave a right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to be circumcised. And so he's telling them, he, this is Paul saying that, that James was a pillar of the church worldwide, that, that James was a, was a foundational member of everything the church would do, that James recognized, he even acknowledged the grace given by Jesus, and that he, he was inviting Paul in the early part of his ministry, inviting Paul into the work that they would do. And so James would become the insignificant nobody brother of Jesus. And then he would become this person that Jesus continued to come to, to reveal himself to, to reveal the works that he would have to do. And then he would become a pillar, a foundational member of the growing church worldwide. So Jesus had intentions for his brother. He had a position for his brother. Through his patience and through his work on James, James would begin to step into a major role for the church. In Acts chapter 15, the early part of the church, when the, the council of, uh, of Jerusalem would be established, these believers established together in the midst of per persecution, and the growth of the church, James is one of the people kind of leading this meeting with the church. He says, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. And so James is this leader in the church all of the sudden in this position of authority. And so why is this important? Why is it important that we understand this? It's important to understand everything that James was in these moments, in these times, to see how significant it is that he revealed himself as a servant. He revealed himself as a servant. He, 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 he presented himself 
as a lowly servant. You know, and, and I just started to think about that. You know, think about how much, how much for us as individuals, how much do we think about using or actually are using our relationships and acquaintances for our benefit, right? How often do we do that? You know, for me, my brother worked for the Tiger Athletic Foundation at LSU, and you best believe he was hooking me up with tickets occasionally when he could. And I was asking him. You know, now he works for, a, uh, for a, uh, an event center in Baton Rouge, and they have great concerts come through. And I've already told him, when somebody comes through that I like, you're going to get me some tickets to that, some comps. As I know y'all get them, so don't play me like that. You know, we think about, I'm, I haven't used this to my ability yet, because, but... We have several men in our church who just so happen to be a part of our wonderful sheriff's department. So you best believe that uh, depending on how much that ticket is, if, I, if I'm acting a fool, I, I may hit them up and say, hey, man, I need some help. <laughs> but the thing that I love about James's presentation of himself, because I feel like we may have found ourselves in this place, where James didn't present himself as, this is James, the brother of Jesus. Like, just think of how much weight that would have held. You know, to use this relationship and be like, I am the brother of Jesus, listen to me. Like, I, like just going up to people and just ministering and leading, be like, I mean, everything I say trumps you, right? Because I'm, I'm the brother of Jesus. Like, I mean, we grew up together. I know him. We're, we're, we're close. You know, he very easily could have done that, very easily could have presented himself as the brother of Jesus. But what's significant is, is that James in this letter, in the 108 verses that are packed into this letter, he mentions the name of Jesus twice. He only mentions the name of Jesus twice. You know, and it was this lack of prideful arrogance that allowed him to fully experience the joy of knowing Christ. You know, not simply knowing the physical uh, nature of who Jesus was, not just knowing the man, the flesh as his brother, but to know him spiritually. To recognize the divinity of Jesus and submitting himself as a servant when he very easily could have put himself above everyone. And Christians can do this. Christians can be the worst. Even just as living off this title of Christian, kind of elevate ourselves above everybody else, like we've got it all figured out and we've got it all together. But what James does is he, he, he lowers himself. As Jesus had constantly instructed in the Bible that, that I'm a, you know, even John the Baptist would say, I have to decrease that he might increase, that it's putting myself down below, making myself lower than my brother to serve him to serve each other, to serve people, putting himself down, so not, not kind of tearing himself apart, but just submitting himself in this place of service. Jesus was more than his brother, and I love that. In that same verse, in verse 1, he says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those words are so significant because Jesus was more than his brother. He was his Lord. He was more than this fleshly person that came who we know was sinless. But even more than that, even more than this physical relationship he had with Jesus, he recognized Jesus as Lord. He recognized Jesus as Christ. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. He recognized Jesus as Lord, as Christ. He recognized him as Lord, admitting a personal acceptance of who Jesus was. And he recognized him as Christ. 
Christ meaning anointed one, Christ meaning son of God, that he understood the positional recognition, the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus was more. I mean, how far is that from the moment in, in, in John 7 when he didn't believe in him and now he's proclaiming him not only as, as God, the son of God, but he's proclaiming as my Lord, as my master, as my ruler, as my authority. When he very easily could have been like, I mean, that's my brother. You know, he could, have, he could have been jealous of Jesus. He could have been jealous of the things that Jesus was doing, the attention that Jesus was getting. He could have used his position to, to talk down to people, to rule people, to push people around, but he didn't. He presented himself as servant. And so this position, this vision of his position that he had was as a lowly servant. And he invites us as Christians, as we begin to walk faithfully into the work that we have, working from victory, is to understand that we are called to be servants. That we are called to be people for people. That we are called to be people loving God. To be called, people called loving people. That that's what he's called us to. He's invited us into that. And you know how much I love C.S. Lewis. And I try to quote him every week if I can. But he tells us this. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, a proud man is always looking down on things and on people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot look up at what's above you. So as long as you're looking down on others, you'll constantly miss the things that Jesus has for us and wants to do with us. And then he says this. He says that it leads, this pride, he says it leads to every vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. That whenever we are living with this pride about us, this, this, this attitude where we've elevated ourselves on this platform, it will hinder our faithful walk. It will hinder us walk, working and walking from victory because we'll be thinking that the victory is coming from me. That I'm good enough, that I've got it all together, that I'm more important, that I'm better, that I've got more money, more clothes, more this, more that. Whatever it might be. You know, for James and for even for Paul, when Paul would, would, would say, he's like, I'm the least worthy. Like, I've got it the least together. You know, he's like, I've just not got it all figured out. Constantly placing themselves in this place of a servant. And it's dismissing this idea of pride, this pride that, that was in the very beginning. Because what the devil does, that you know, the devil is the one that whispers the lies of pride into our ears. That's what he did in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. He whispered into Eve's ears and he said, you deserve that fruit. Like you're good enough for that. You, you should have that. You should have everything you want. It's elevating ourselves to this pride. The enemy's done it from the beginning. And so what he does is he, he whispers into our ears. You, you shouldn't be serving them. You shouldn't let them treat you like that. You shouldn't do those things. You deserve more than that. And so it's with those attitudes, especially in the culture that we live in, it's all about how I can get ahead, how I can be the best, how I can step on others to be to the place that I need to be. When James and Jesus would bring us before a holy God and say, no, he's called us to be servants of each other, to be servants of a holy God, to proclaim Jesus as Lord in Christ in our life. James knew that everything good and perfect and satisfying was in Jesus. And he wasn't jealous, but he was dependent and he was devoted. He was changed by the special revelation of who Jesus was. You know, and we find this special revelation today. You know, there's, there's two types of revelation. There's general revelation. There's where na the Bible tells us that nature, that, the, that the, the 
heavens, that, that the earth, that creation reveal who God is. And so that's general revelation. And then we have special revelation where James had special revelation because he knew Jesus. But we also can have special re- revelation because we have God's word. And God's word says that, that this is the revelation of who God is and who Jesus is. And so uh, St. Augustine, he said this, he said, for now we treat the scripture of God as the face of God, melt in its presence. So if we need a reminder to be that God's word is going to be that thing that constantly brings us to this mindset of humility, that brings us to this place, a view, a, a true view of our position before a holy God and before each other. And James knew that. And so for us as Christians, as we establish our position, I pray that we would not boast about titles, but serve unconditionally, that we would be servants. And that we would take this example from James when he called himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so not only his view of his position is something that we need to understand, but the second thing and the last thing this morning is that his view of his purpose is important for us to understand. His view of his purpose is important for us to understand. Continuing on in verse 1, he says that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In the dispersion. So not only was he determined and devoted to his position as a worshiper of God, but also his purpose of being an extension of Christ to those in need. An extension of Christ to those in need. And so this, this word dispersion, it literally means the scattered. Okay, those those scattered. And so he's writing to a people, these Christian brothers and sisters who were scattered, who were pushed out of the promised land, who were pushed out of Jerusalem, rather because of persecution, rather because of hostility. They weren't accepted by their people because they were Christian Jews. And so the Jews in those places were pushing them out. They didn't want them around. And so James is writing to a people who are scattered, it says, who are, who are spread out amongst the lands, who aren't gathered together, who are in need, who are feeling alone, who are feeling like they don't have a place who are feeling like they don't have support. And so James is taking it upon himself to write specifically to these people who the Bible says are scattered. Who are scattered. You know, James is stepping into the purpose that will be the common thread and the pivot point of this entire study. That, that you will see that the way this study begins and the way this study ends is on one thing. And that everything we talk about, because we're going to talk about, uh, you know, the first week dealing with trials and temptations. We're going to talk about the way that we speak about people, the way we speak to people, the way we view people, the way we act around people, the way we, we act differently than the rest of the world acts. And so there's going to be all these things that are laid before us, but it's, it's all around this common thread that the, the book of James starts with and that the book of James ends with. And it's this idea that when struggles of the world press against us, God has not forgotten about us. That when the, pre- when the pressures of the world press against us, God has not forgotten about you. That God remembers you. That he sends comfort for you and to you. And that's what James is doing right here. Is that when these people are scattered, when they are under oppression, when they feel alone, when they don't know what they're supposed to do next. He's offering that comfort. He's, rem- he's letting them know that I have not forgotten about you. That God has not forgotten about you. That when things press against you, God has not forgotten about you. And you know, and the reality is, as, as I was reading this and thinking about this this week, is that I believe most of the people we deal with on a day-to-day basis, uh, whether it's outside the church or inside of the church, live in this space of feeling spiritually scattered. 
that they just feel like they're just missing something, that they don't know what they're supposed to do, that they don't know where to begin, they don't know where to go. And so there are people around us that are living, I believe, in this same space of, of the dispersion, of the scattering, that they feel like they just don't quite have it all together, and that we as Christians are purposed, not that we have it all together, but we are purposed when we are in God's Word, when we are worshiping a holy God, when we are submitting ourselves before our brothers and sisters, that we are looking for individuals, reaching out into individuals' lives, speaking into their dispersion, speaking into their scattering, where they feel like they don't know where to begin. They don't know where to be. They don't know what to do. I don't know if I need to go back to church. I don't know if I want to go back to church. I don't know if I want to be around these people. I've done some things. I've said some things. I've, I've, I've made some terrible decisions. And it's where us as Christians, as this servant, that we see our purpose, our view, and our purpose that as they're feeling scattered, as they're feeling alone, as they're feeling lost, that we're speaking that comfort into their lives. God has not forgot about you. God has not abandoned you. God has not left you to look for someone else to fill the hole that you were in. God is looking for you. That God is seeking after you. Not because you offer Him anything great and glorious, but because He just wants you. He wants us. James writes this letter not to a specific church, but to a struggling group to encourage them, to instruct them, leading them not only to spiritual gains, but spiritual maturity, which is another common thread that we'll see through this, this book, that he's inviting us into the spiritual maturity that is found from this perspective, that we're working from this place of victory that Christ has ensured. In view of our place, in view of our position and our purpose, that we are reaching into these scattered lives and we are speaking this encouragement and this comfort. That we are communicating this with them. You know, James was being an instrument of God's mercy in this moment. And that's what God's called us to be. That is our purpose as Christians. You know, as not only our place as lowly servants, serving God and serving people around us, but then our purpose. Our purpose is to be instruments of mercy, instruments of grace, to be these tools that reach into people's lives and remind them God has not forgotten about you. You know, these people would have been so alone. You know, because when the church started, it started with them all together. You know, it tells us in the early part of the book of Acts that they were doing for each other, that they were loving each other, they were providing for each other. And then as the hostility comes, specifically more than likely in the times when Stephen was martyred, when he was stoned, and then Paul is going around ravaging homes before he, of Saul before he became Paul, before Jesus opened his eyes. You know, so the church is just being ravaged. And James writes this, the last, more than likely the last letter written in the, old, the, the New Testament. He tells them that God has not forgotten about you. And that's what this whole letter will be about. James speaking into their lives, giving them instructions on day-to-day life in the midst of struggle, in the midst of the difficulties of the world, in the midst of the, the issues. I mean, my goodness, day by day by day, if you're not experiencing something that gives you a little bit of anxiety or something that you're stepping into the beginning of the week worried about or just overwhelmed with or just disgusted with or just disappointed in, I mean, you're not living, right? I mean, everybody is stepping into these difficult struggles of life. And so he's speaking this into our lives today that God has not forgotten about you regardless of where you're at, where, what you've done or where you've been. He's speaking into the scattered that we feel and he's saying God has not forgotten about you. As much as you feel like you're forgotten or as much as you feel like you've forgotten him. And he has not forgotten about any one of us. 
And so what do we do this morning? What is our response to this? And I believe it's these two things kind of based off of our points this morning. That we understand our position. We understand our place before God and before people. You know, James calls Jesus Lord. He calls him Lord. The Greek word being kurios. That it is he to whom a person or thing belongs. About which he has power of deciding. Or the master of your life. So the first thing that we understand or embrace or accept our position as servants, bond servants, as the Bible would call us, to a holy, anointed, sanctified God and the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would embrace and accept Jesus as our Lord, the master of our life, and, and, and acknowledge him as the anointed one as Christ, the one who came to save us, the Messiah. A.W. Tozer says, for the, for the Christian, humility is absolutely indispensable. Without it, there can be no self-knowledge, there's no repentance, and there's no faith, and there's no salvation unless we have the humility to understand not only our need, but how little we are before a holy God and how much God has placed us here to serve each other. That not a single one of us is any more important than the person next to us, the person at our workplace, the person at the place we like to go eat, that we are not more important than anyone else. And that's part of this book we'll be about in a couple weeks. We'll be talking about the, how God views us, how we view other people, that we don't just view people for what we can gain from them. And so as we consider our position, that this would be kind of our prayer this morning, that we would let God, that you would let God have your life because he can do more with it than you can. That we would let God, we would call Jesus as Lord this morning. And that we would pray, God, interrupt whatever I'm doing so that I, we can join into or that I can join into whatever you're doing. God, let me be involved in what you're doing. Interrupt me. Shake me up. Break down my walls. Help me understand my position before you and who you are and what you plan to do in my life. God, help me accept that. And then the second thing, not only understand our position, but embrace our purpose. Church, I pray that as individuals, not only as individuals, but as families, and not only as families, but as a faith family, as a church, as Cross Point Community Church, that we would embrace our purpose, that we would see. You know, I, I love in Acts 1, verse 1 of 14, uh, it talks about James and it talks about the people. And it says here, it says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Talking about James. History tells us that James was a prayer. It even says that, that he prayed so much that he had, they said specifically, the knees of a camel. That his knees were so calloused because he was constantly praying for people, making intercession, supplications for individuals. He was just praying. You know, and a lot of times as Christians, we don't always know what to do or what to say. Hey, the least we can do is drop to our knees for our brothers and sisters here or around the world and pray. Praying for individuals. James was a prayer. You know, and, and James, as his life would move on, it says that James would even be martyred for his faith. It says that he was thrown from the roof of a temple. That he was thrown from the roof of a temple. And when he hit the ground, he didn't die. And so what happened then, it says that the, the people, these religious leaders, what they did is they came and they beat him to death with clubs. And so he, he gave his life for this Jesus, for his half-brother that he at one point in his life didn't believe in, was indifferent to, was just kind of like, ah, I mean, you do your thing. And I mean you got to go do this or people won't believe in you. 
But he would become a pillar. He would become this person living out this act of faith that even as his, these men are, are, are beating him, that he's crying out the same way Jesus did. It says this in history that he said this, that he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The same things that Jesus said. And so what he brings us into, this purpose, that our purpose is not limited to the people who only do good to us. He said our purpose extends to even the people who do harm to us. That we are servants to them. That we are loving them, we are encouraging them, and we are praying for them, for God to change their hearts, for God to show them something, for God to do something in their life. So for us this morning, the challenge is that we would see, that we would understand our position, and that we would embrace our purpose as a church this morning, as Christians this morning, because our families desperately need it, because our communities desperately need it. Our kids, if you have kids this morning, your kids desperately need you to live in this way as a servant not only to the Lord Jesus Christ, but to them. That you're serving them, that you're leading them in this way of humility, that you're leading them in this way of love and worship of the Lord. And so this morning I pray you would pray this and interrupt my life, Lord. Do with it what you see fit. Give me the direction and the confidence to step where I need to step and to stop what I need to stop. Can, we, can that be our prayer this morning? Can that be our prayer? Interrupt my life, Jesus. Shake things up. Shake things up this morning. Shake up who I am. Shake up what I'm about. Shake up what I do. And then just praying for the direction and confidence to step where you need to step and to even stop. Maybe there's some things we need to stop. We need to strip away so that we can begin to walk in the things that Christ has for us. You know, because what we'll see this morning and what we'll see moving through this series is that, that Christ has done so much. And every work that I do through my faith in Jesus is from the perspective of understanding what Christ has already done. And understanding that I'm working from a victory, it removes the fight, right? It removes the, the, the critical nature at which I evaluate myself. It doesn't mean that we don't do, because that's what this series is about. It's about our works. It's about what we do, but in response of the work that Christ has already done. And so I just ask you, if you could, just, just close your eyes with me. And we're not going to do any, you know, anything fancy, but I just want you to close your eyes and just take a moment. Just take a moment and pray these things. Pray, God, interrupt my life. Interrupt what I'm doing. Interrupt what I'm about. God, interrupt my life to do with it what you see fit. I, 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 I'd ask that you would pray that. That you would pray that this morning. Lord, interrupt my life and do with it what you see fit. God, what do you want to do with me? My life is in your hands. And not only pray that this morning, but I pray that you would ask him for direction and confidence. Direction to know where to go and the confidence to do it. To step where you need to step for you, for your family, for your one that you're praying about. To step where you need to step and to maybe stop what you need to stop. What in your life is distracting you? What in your life is drawing you away from the holiness of God, the, the thoughts of God? What do we need to stop so that you can start doing what he's called you to? Father God, we thank you for this morning. 
God, I just pray that as we begin to look at how we work from a perspective of victory, how our faith is active, how it is living, how it is moving and motivating the things that we do and the things that we say. Father God, I I just pray. I pray you would never let us get comfortable. God, I pray that our constant prayer day after day would be, God, interrupt my rhythm. God, interrupt my life. God, show me what it is you want me to do. God, let me put it in your hands. God, and I pray that we would constantly seek the direction and confidence that only you can offer us to step where you need us to step and to stop what you need us to stop. Father, we are such a distracted people. God, we are so, uh, Lord, just, just selfish by nature, so prideful by nature. God, I pray that you strip, or strip away our selfishness and our pride. God, show us that this life that we live, God, that the, 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 that the world you created us in is not about us. It's not about me. But it's about you, and it's about how I serve and love the people around me, how I introduce them to you and your goodness. Father God, I I just pray this morning, I pray for individuals, God. I pray for those maybe that haven't acknowledged you as Lord, haven't recognized you as Christ, as the anointed one, the Messiah, the saving one. God, I I pray this morning that we lay aside pride and we recognize our need. Say, Father, I need you. You tell us if we believe in you that we can be saved, if we believe that what you've come to do is true, recognize our need of a Savior that we can be saved turning away from the sin that distracts us and satisfies us momentarily. God, we just pray. I pray for that. I pray for that individual here, those individuals here this morning that desperately need that. God, and I pray for the Christians here this morning that maybe have gotten comfortable. God, stepped away from the active faith that they, they maybe once had, God. They've stopped working. They've stopped pushing themselves. God, they've, they've settled into comforts and complacencies. Father God, I pray that you stir us up this morning. God, interrupt the rhythms of our lives. God, challenge us to meet the needs of people around us and the things that you'd have us to do. God, call us to be servants and let us hear you. Let us respond. That we would be servants looking for those in need. Father, I just pray for our church. I pray you continue to use us in a special way. Challenge us here this morning. Father God, we love you and thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.